Essays on Some Unsettled Questions of Political Economy Essay 5, Part 2 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Essays on Some Unsettled Questions of Political Economy by John Stuart Mill Essay 5 On the Definition of Political Economy and on the method of investigation proper to it. Part 2. It is to this important division of the field of science that one of the writers who have most correctly conceived and copiously illustrated its nature and limits, we mean Monsieur Say, has chosen to give the name political economy. And indeed, this large extension of the signification of that term is countenanced by its etymology but the words political economy have long ceased to have so large a meaning. Every writer is entitled to use the words which are his tools in the manner which he judges most conductive to the general purpose of the exposition of truth, but he exercises his discretion under liability to criticism, and M. Say seems to have done in this instance what should never be done without strong reason to have altered the meaning of a name which was appropriated to a particular purpose, and for which, therefore, a substitute must be provided, in order to transfer it to an object for which it was easy to find a more characteristic denomination. What is now commonly understood by the term political economy is not the science of speculative politics, but a branch of that science. It does not treat the whole of man's nature, as modified by the social state, nor of the whole conduct of man in society. It is concerned with him solely as a being who desires to possess wealth, and who is capable of judging of the comparative efficacy of means for obtaining that end. It predicts only such of the phenomena of the social state as take place in consequence of the pursuit of wealth. It takes entire abstraction of every other human passion or motive, except those which may be regarded as perpetually antagonizing principles to the desire of wealth, namely, aversion to labor, and desire of the present enjoyment of costly indulgences. These it takes, to a certain extent, into its calculations, because these do not merely, like other desires, occasionally conflict with the pursuits of wealth, but accompany it always as a drag or impediment, and are therefore inseparably mixed up in the consideration of it. Political economy considers mankind as occupied solely in acquiring and consuming wealth, and aims at showing what is the course of action into which mankind, living in a state of society, would be impelled if that motive, except in the degree in which it is checked by the two perpetual counter-motives above averted to, were absolute ruler of all their actions. Under the influence of this desire, it shows mankind accumulating wealth, and employing that wealth in the production of other wealth, sanctioning by mutual agreement the institution of property, establishing laws to prevent individuals from enroaching upon the property of others by force or fraud, adopting various contrivances for increasing the productiveness of their labor, settling the division of the produce by agreement under the influence of competition, 
competition itself being governed by certain laws, which laws are therefore the ultimate regulators of the division of the produce, and employing certain expedients, as money, credit, etc., to facilitate the distribution. All these operations, though many of them are really the result of a plurality of motives, are considered by political economy as flowing solely from the desire of wealth. The science then proceeds to investigate the laws which govern these several operations under the supposition that man is a being who is determined, by the necessity of his nature, to prefer a great portion of wealth to a smaller in all cases, without any other exception than that constituted by the two counter-motives already specified. Not that any political economist was ever so absurd as to suppose that mankind are really thus constituted, but because this is the mode in which science must necessarily proceed. When an effect depends upon a concurrence of causes, those causes must be studied one at a time, and their laws separately investigated, if we wish, through the causes, to obtain the power of either predicting or controlling the effect, since the law of the effect is compounded of the laws of all the causes which determine it, the law of the centripetal and that of the tangential force must have been known before the motions of the earth and planets could be explained, or many of them predicted. The same is the case with the conduct of man in society. In order to judge how he will act under the variety of desires and aversions which are concurrently operating on him, we must know how he would act under the exclusive influence of each one in particular. There is, perhaps, no action of a man's life in which he is neither under the immediate nor under the remote influence of any impulse but the mere desire of wealth. With respect to these parts of human conduct, of which wealth is not even the principal object, to these political economy does not pretend that its conclusions are applicable. But there are also certain departments of human affairs in which the acquisition of wealth is the main and acknowledged end. It is only of these political economy takes notice. The manner in which it necessarily proceeds is that of treating the main and acknowledged end as if it were the sole end, which, of all hypotheses equally simple, is the nearest to the truth. The political economist inquires what are the actions which would be produced by this desire, if, within the departments in question, it were unimpeded by any other. In this way, a nearer approximation is obtained than would otherwise be practicable to the real order of human affairs in those departments. The approximation is then to be corrected by making proper allowance for the effects of any impulses of a different description, which can be shown to interfere with the result of any particular case. Only in a few of the most striking cases, such as the important one of the principle of population, are these corrections interpolated into the expositions of political economy itself. The strictness of purely scientific arrangement being thereby somewhat departed from, for the sake of practical unity, 
so far as it is known or may be presumed that the conduct of mankind in the pursuit of wealth is under the collateral influence of any other of the properties of our nature that the desire of obtaining the greatest quantity of wealth with the least labor and self-denial the conclusions of political economy will so far fail of being applicable to the explanation or prediction of real events until they are modified by a correct allowance for the degree of influence exercised by the other causes. Political economy, then, may be defined as follows, and the definition seems to be complete. The science which traces the laws of such of the phenomena of society as arise from the combined operations of mankind for the production of wealth, in so far as those phenomena are not modified by the pursuit of any other object. But while this is a correct definition of political economy as a portion of the field of science, the didactic writer on the subject will naturally combine in his exposition with the truths of the pure science as many of the practical modifications as will, in his estimation, be most conductive to the usefulness of his work. The above attempt to frame a stricter definition of the science than what are commonly received as such may be thought to be of little use, or, at best, to be chiefly useful in a general survey and classification of the sciences, rather than as conducting to the more successful pursuit of the particular science in question. We think otherwise, and for this reason, that with the consideration of the definition of a science is inseparably connected that of the philosophic method of the science the nature of the process by which its investigations are to be carried on, its truths to be arrived at. Now, in whatever science there are systematic differences of opinion, which is as much as to say, in all the moral or mental sciences, and in political economy among the rest, in whatever science there exist, among those who have attended to the subject, what are commonly called differences of principle, as distinguished from differences of matter of fact or detail, the cause will be found to be a difference in their conceptions of the philosophical method of the science. The parties who differ are guided, either knowingly or unconsciously, by different views concerning the nature of the evidence appropriate to the subject. They differ not solely in that they believe themselves to see, but in the quarter whence they obtain the light by which they think they see it. The most universal of the forms in which this difference of method is accustomed to present itself is the ancient feud between what is called theory and what is called practice or experience. There are, on social-political questions, two kinds of reasoners. There is one portion who term themselves practical men, and call the others theorists, a title which the latter do not reject, though they by no means recognize it as peculiar to them. The distinction between the two is a very broad one, though it is one of which the language employed is the most incorrect exponent. It has been again and again demonstrated that those who are accused of disputing facts and disregarding experience build and profess to build wholly upon facts and experience, while those who disavow theory cannot make one step without theorizing. 
but although both classes of inquiries do nothing but theorize and both of them consult no other guide than experience there is this difference between them and a most important difference it is that those who are called practical men require specific experience and argue wholly upwards from particular facts to a general conclusion while those who are called theorists aim at embracing a wider field of experience and having argued upwards from particular facts to a general principle including a much wider range than that of the question under discussion they argue downwards from that general principle to a variety of specific conclusions suppose for example that the question were whether absolute kings were likely to employ the powers of government for the welfare or for the oppression of their subjects the practicals would endeavor to determine this question by a direct induction from the conduct of particular despotic monarchs as testified by history the theorists would refer the question to be decided by the test not solely of our experience of kings but of our experience of men they would contend that an observation of the tendencies which human nature has manifested in the variety of situations in which human beings have been placed and especially observation of what passes in our own minds warrant us in inferring that a human being in the situation of a despotic king will make a bad use of power and that this conclusion would lose nothing of its certainty even if absolute kings had never existed or if history furnished us with no information of the matter in which they had conducted themselves the first of these methods is a method of induction merely the last of a mixed method of induction and ratioization the first may be called a method a posteriori, the latter a method a priori we are aware that this last expression is sometimes used to characterize a supposed mode of philosophizing which does not profess to be founded upon experience at all but we are not acquainted with any mode of philosophizing on political subjects at least to which such a description is fairly applicable by the method a posteriori we mean that which requires as the basis of its conclusion not experience merely but specific experience by the method a priori we mean what is commonly been meant reasoning from an assumed hypothesis which is not a practice confined to mathematics but is of the essence of all science which admits of general reasoning at all to verify the hypothesis itself a posteriori that is to examine whether the facts of any actual case are in accordance with it is no part of the business of science at all but of the application of science in the definition which we have attempted to frame of the science of political economy we have characterized it as essentially an abstract science and its method as the method a priori such is undoubtedly its character as it has been understood and taught by all its most distinguished teachers it reasons and as we contend must necessarily reason from assumptions not from facts it is built upon hypotheses strictly analogous to those which under the name of definitions are to be found of other abstract sciences geometry presupposes an arbitrary definition of a line that which has length but not breadth just in the same manner does political economy presuppose an arbitrary definition of man as a being who invariably does that by which he may obtain the greatest amount of necessities 
conveniences, and luxuries, with the smallest quantity of labor and physical self-denial, with which they can be obtained in the existing state of knowledge. It is true that this definition of man is not formally prefixed to any work on political economy, as the definition of a line is prefixed to Euclid's elements, and the proportion as by being so prefixed it would be less in danger of being forgotten. We may see ground for regret that this is not done. It is proper that what is assumed in every particular case should once for all be brought before the mind in its full extent by being somewhere formally stated as a general maxim. Now no one is conversant with systematic treatises on political economy will question that whatever a political economist has shown that, by acting in a particular manner, a laborer may obviously obtain higher wages, a capitalist larger profits, or a landlord higher rent, he concludes as a matter of course that they will certainly act in that manner. Political economy, therefore, reasons from assumed premises, from premises which might be totally without foundation in fact, and which are not pretended to be universally in accordance with it. The conclusions of political economy, consequently like those of geometry, are only true, as the common phrase is, in the abstract. That is, they are only true under certain suppositions, in which none but general causes, causes common to the whole class of cases under consideration, are taken into the account. This ought not to be denied by the political economist. If he deny it, then, and then only, he places himself in the wrong. The a priori method which is laid to his charge, as if his employment of it proved his whole science to be worthless, is, as we shall presently show, the only method by which truth can possibly be attained in any department of the social science. All that is requisite is that he be on his guard not to ascribe to conclusions which are grounded upon an hypothesis a different kind of certainty from which really belongs to them. There would be true without qualification, only in cases is purely imaginary. In proportion as the actual fact recede from the hypothesis, he must allow a corresponding deviation from the strict letter of his conclusion. Otherwise, it will be true only of things such as he has arbitrarily supposed, not of such things as really exist. That which is true in the abstract is always true in the concrete with proper allowances, when a certain cause really exists, and, if left to itself, would infallibly produce a certain effect, the same effect modified by all the other concurrent causes will correctly correspond to the result really produced. The conclusions of geometry are not strictly true of such lines, angles, and figures as human hands can construct. But no one, therefore, contends that the conclusions of geometry are of no utility, or that it would be better to shut up Euclid's elements and content ourselves with practice and experience. No mathematician ever thought that his definition of a line corresponded to an actual line. As little did any political economist ever imagine that real men had no object of desire but wealth, or none which would not give way to the slightest motive of a pecuniary kind. But they were justified in assuming this for the purposes of their argument, because they had to do only with those parts of human conduct 
which have pecuniary advantage for their direct and principal object, and because, as no two individual cases are exactly alike, no general maxims could ever be laid down unless some of the circumstances of the particular case were left out of consideration. But we go farther than to affirm that the method a priori is a legitimate mode of philosophical investigation in the moral sciences. We contend that it is the only mode. We affirm that the method a posteriori, or that of scientific experience, is altogether inefficacious in those sciences, as a means of arriving at any desirable body of valuable truth, though it admits of being usefully applied in aid of a method a priori, and even forms an indispensable supplement to it. There is a property common to almost all the moral sciences, and by which they are distinguished from many of the physical. This is, that it is seldom in our power to make experiments in them. In chemistry and natural philosophy, we can not only observe what happens under all combinations of circumstances which nature brings together, but we may also try an indefinite number of new combinations. This we can seldom do in ethical, and scarcely ever in political science. We cannot try forms of government and systems of national policy on a diminutive scale in our laboratories, shaping our experiments as we think may most conduce to the advancement of knowledge. We therefore study nature under circumstances of great disadvantage in these sciences, being confined to the limited number of experiments which take place, if we may so speak, of their own accord, without any preparation or management of ours, in circumstances, moreover, of great complexity, and never perfectly known to us, and with the far greater part of processes concealed from our observation. The consequence of this unavoidable defect in the materials of the induction is, that we can rarely obtain what Bacon has quaintly, but not unaptly termed, experimentum circusus. In any science which admits of an unlimited range of arbitrary experiments, an experimentum circusus may always be obtained. Being able to vary all the circumstances, we can always take effectual means of ascertaining which of them are, and which of them are not, material. Call the effect B, and let the question be whether the cause A in any way contributes to it. We try an experiment in which all the surrounding circumstances are altered, except A alone, and if the effect B is nonetheless produced, A is the cause of it. Or, instead of leaving A and changing the other circumstances, we leave all the other circumstances and change A. If the effect B, in that case, does not take place, then again A is a necessary condition of its existence. Either of these experiments, if accurately performed, is an experimentum circusus. It converts the presumption we had before of the existence of a connection between A and B into proof by negating every other hypothesis which would account for the appearances. But this can seldomly be done in the moral sciences, owing to the immense multitude of the influencing circumstances, and our very scanty means of varying the experiment. 
even in operating upon an individual mind, which is the case affording greatest room for experimenting, we cannot often obtain a crucial experiment. The effect, for example, of a particular circumstance in education upon the formation of character may be tried in a variety of cases, but we can hardly ever be certain that any two of those cases differ in all their circumstances except the solitary one of which we wish to estimate the influence. In how much greater a degree must this difficulty exist in the affairs of states, where even the number of recorded experiments is so scanty in comparison with the variety and multitude of the circumstances concerned in each? How, for example, can we obtain a crucial experiment on the effect of a restrictive commercial policy upon national wealth? We must find two nations alike in every other respect, or at least possessed, in a degree exactly equal, of everything which conduces to national opulence, and adopting exactly the same policy in all their other affairs, but differing in this only, that one of them adopts a system of commercial restrictions, and the other adopts free trade. This would be a decisive experiment, similar to those which we can almost always obtain in experimental physics. Doubtless this would be most conclusive evidence of all if we could get it. But let any one consider how infinitely numerous and various are the circumstances which either directly or indirectly do or may influence the amount of national wealth, and then ask himself what are the probabilities that in the longest revolution of ages two nations will be found which agree, and can be shown to agree, in all those circumstances except one. Since therefore it is vain to hope that truth can be arrived at, either in political economy or in any other department of the social science, while we look at facts in the concrete, clothed in all the complexity with which nature has surrounded them, and endeavor to elicit a general law by a process of induction from a comparison of details, there remains no other method than the a priori one, or that of abstract speculation. Although sufficiently ample grounds are not afforded in the field of politics for a satisfactory induction by a comparison of the effects, the causes may, in all cases, be made subject of specific experiment. These causes are laws of human nature and external circumstances capable of exciting the human will to action, the desires of man and the nature of the conduct to which they prompt him are within the reach of our observation. We can also observe what are the objects which excite those desires, the materials of this knowledge every one can be principally collected within itself, with reasonable consideration of the differences of which experience discloses to him the existence between himself and other people, Knowing therefore accurately the properties of the substance concerned, we may reason with as much certainty as in the most demonstrative parts of physics from every assumed set of circumstances. This will be merely trifling if assumed circumstances bear no sort of resemblance to any real ones. But if the assumption is correct as far as it goes, and differs from the truth in no other wise than as a part differs from the whole, then the conclusions which are correctly deduced from the assumption constitute abstract truth, and when completed by adding or subtracting the effect of the non-calculated circumstances, they are true in the concrete, and may be applied in practice. 
Of this character is the science of political economy in the writings of its best teachers. To render it perfect as an abstract science, the combinations of circumstances which it assumes, in order to trace their effect, should embody all the circumstances that are common to all cases whatever, and likewise all the circumstances that are common to any important class of cases. The conclusions correctly deduced from these assumptions would be as true in the abstract as those of mathematics, and would be as near to an approximation as abstract truth can ever be, to truth in the concrete. When the principles of political economy are to be applied to a particular case, then it is necessary to take into account all the individual circumstances of that case, not only examining to which of the sets of circumstances contemplated by the abstract science the circumstances of the case in question correspond, but likewise what other circumstances may exist in that case, which, not being common to it with any large and strong-marked class of cases, have not fallen under the cognizance of the science. The circumstances have been called disturbing causes, and here only it is that an element of uncertainty enters into the process, an uncertainty inherent in the nature of these complex phenomena, and arising from the impossibility of being quite sure that all the circumstances of the particular case are known to us sufficiently in detail that our attention is not unduly diverted from them. This constitutes the only uncertainty of political economy, and not of it alone, but of the moral sciences in general. When the disturbing causes are known, the allowance necessary to be made for them detracts in no way from scientific precision, nor constitutes any deviation from the a priori method. The disturbing causes are not handed over to be dealt with by mere conjecture, like friction in mechanics, to which they have been often compared. They may at first have been considered merely as non-assignable deduction to be made by guess from the result given by the general principles of science, but in time many of them are brought within the pale of the abstract science itself, and their effect is found to admit of as accurate an estimation as those more striking effects which they modify. The disturbing causes have their laws, as the causes which are thereby disturbed have theirs, and from the laws of the disturbing causes, the nature and amount of the disturbance may be predicted a priori, like the operation of the more general laws, which they said to modify or disturb, but with which they might more properly be said to be concurrent. The effect of the special causes is then to be added to, or subtracted from, the effect of the general ones. These disturbing causes are sometimes circumstances which operate upon human conduct through the same principles of human nature with which political economy is conversant, namely, the desire of wealth, but which are not general enough to be taken into account in the abstract science. Of disturbances of this description, every political economist can produce many examples. In other instances, the disturbing cause is some other law of human nature. In the latter case, it never can fall within the province of political economy. It belongs to some other science. And here, the mere political economist, he who has studied no science but political economy, if he attempt to apply his science to practice, will fail. Begin footnote. 
one of the strongest reasons for drawing the line of separation clearly and broadly between science and art is the following that the principle of classification in science most conveniently follows the classification of causes while arts must necessarily be classified according to the classification of the effects the production of which is their appropriate end now an effect whether in physics or morals commonly depends upon a concurrence of causes and frequently happens that several of these causes belong to different sciences thus in the construction of engines upon the principles of science of mechanics it is necessary to bear in mind the chemical properties of the material such as its liability to oxidize its electrical and magnetic properties and so forth from this it follows that although the necessary foundation of all art is science that is the knowledge of the properties or laws of the objects upon which and with which the art dons its work it is not equally true that every art corresponds to one particular science each art presupposes not one science but science in general or at least many distinct sciences End footnote. as for the other kind of disturbing causes namely those which operate through the same law of human nature out of which the general principles of the science arise these might always be brought within the pale of the abstract science if it were worth while and when we make the necessary allowances for them in practice if we are doing anything but guess we are following out the method of the abstract science into minute detail inserting among its hypothesis a fresh and still more complex combination of circumstances so adding pro hoc vice a supplementary chapter or appendix or at least a supplementary theorem to the abstract science end of part two of essay five